Thank you so much for that introduction and such wonderful music on the air. My name is Jacob Nidig. We are live here in studio with your weekly rendition of the Sports Zoo seated to my right, the one and only Zach Zafrin. We have a fun-filled show of basketball today. Going to be talking about the Stanford team, both the men and women with their various win streaks. And yes, I said both with their various win streak. But before we tap into that, I'm swing it over to Zach and ask him what his highlight of the past week has been. What do you got for the listeners, Zach? Oh, man. Well into week five, middle of winter quarter, and I'm just happy to be getting through the quarter, man. Winter quarter is brutal. If you're a student or you know a Stanford affiliate, you know that. But what brightens my week each and every week is the sports zoo to be here with my co-host Jacob Nidig. So I'm excited to talk a little sports. Always a good time here on a Tuesday afternoon. No, absolutely. And one team that, you know, hasn't provided a lot of reason to be excited, the men's basketball team, as we've covered pretty much every week. But the win streak, it it went to five. Um, so, you know, what do you have to say as one of the staunchest haters <laughs> on the air about this team, did did broadly, are we winning at all this year? Are we? What's going on? I know you're you're saying this is a team that isn't to be excited about, but it depends. Like, what, what time frame are we talking? Uh, obviously, that statement would have rung true in all regards just a couple weeks ago. But lo and behold, this team getting not one, not two, not three, and not four, but five consecutive wins. First time they've had consecutive wins all season. Um, And it's got to be in the most Stanford fashion, the most Jared Haas fashion. Beat Oregon of all schools. After Oregon beat number 11 Arizona, then you string together a pair of wins, and then we go on the road and defeat Utah at Utah In the historical sense, I believe the last time we won a road game at Utah was 2013, Jacob. 2013. We're talking a decade removed. So not only is this a team that has disappointed in the large sense, but then they go on to continue this sporadic win streak on the road in Utah who is a top four program in the Pac-12 at the moment, and then you know what they do. They go on over to Boulder, Colorado, and they lose by 20 to a bottom four team in the Pac-12. Is there a better Stanford storyline than that? Yeah, that it, it, it really does not make sense how sporadic this entire season has been, but especially these last two games have been. But, you know, it... it, it it is to be said, hey, I love the fight. I love the passion. I love the way they bounced back after the lowest of lows. I mean, handing Cal one of their three wins all year. At this point, they were like 3-20 and 20 or something. Um, and then to go on and win five straight. That being said, obviously, you know I'm a big uh, critic of their play, <laughs> to say the least, which is it's just odd. When they were losing, I found myself being the most supportive. And yeah. <laughs> now they're winning. I'm like, yeah, I, I, these are not quality wins. I mean, beating Cal, okay. That was, that was, I'll give you a good 20-piece. Barely beating Chicago State, an unaffiliated school, 
down double digits with 10 minutes to go in the second half. I don't know about that one. Oregon State is what it is. Oregon beat themselves. We didn't beat them. But the Utah win was the first time I was like, wow, okay. Okay, we're doing something here. And then, of course, Boulder happens. Uh, but they were competing until the first half. They're playing Tristan De Silva, younger brother of Oscar De Silva. Tristan is a pro. Okay, we're playing top-tier talent. It's just it's hard to win on the road, especially in those mountain schools. I'll give you that one. My biggest interest is how do they respond? Because it's a tough slate. They've got the Arizona schools up next. Arizona State will be an interesting and winnable one. If they can put up a fight with Arizona then maybe this season is to be salvaged. I have no expectations of a win by any means. Um, that being said, they defeated number five USC at home last year, so or, or number three, I don't know, as a top five victory. Um, I'm not expecting a win against Arizona, but if they put up a fight, then maybe there's reason to be had for some sort of postseason bid. Yeah, no, absolutely. A lot to unpack there for sure. Starting with that game, At Utah, you know, that was really a game that, you know, showcased what really Stanford can be. You know, that first half, Stanford racing out to a 15-point victory at halftime. The combination of anyone with the name Michael or Jones (laughs) getting it done. Spencer Jones with 22, Michael Jones with 15, and Michael O'Connell with 11, which was a season high. He's... Uh, you know, someone that has has played well when Stanford has played well. But once again, the name that we don't hear, even against Utah, Harrison Ingram. And, you know, it's interesting that you talked about how you flip-flopped over the season. I have a good friend of mine that said, right when this team gives me reason for hope, they crush it. And it seems that way this season, but... As someone who has also flip-flopped from being positive on this team to negative to now back to being optimistic, Harrison Ingram and my thoughts on him have not changed. That he is just still underperforming. And so with that, though, you know, a win is a win. And, and that game against Utah, you know, one of those games that will definitely be a highlight at the end of the season. Certainly, but, I, you know... I have to push back. I mean, Ingram, sure, enters as a five-star, sky-high expectations. But what are we defining his play as good good or bad based off of? Obviously, the shooting has been abysmal the last two games. 1-7 at Utah, 2-9 at Colorado. But I saw real promise down the stretch watching him play against Chicago State and Cal the two games prior. Wait, what was that first school? (laughs) <laughs> Chicago State. That would be correct. I think about those two games. He scored 15 and 14 respectively. I think of those 29 points, like 27 of them were all second half points. He was really showing up when it mattered down the stretch. Um, obviously, the sh- ball is not going on the basket for him as of late. But hey, six assists at Utah, four assists at Colorado. Also, cutting down on the turnovers. Um He's a playmaker at heart. And when the team is winning, the team is winning. He's doing what he needs to do. He's helping the team win. He's not helping his draft stock. I will say that, certainly. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, one person that I think just kind of reminded me what it means to take over a game, though, is is Tristan Da Silva. What what a performance he had. 
And obviously, he's someone that, to be totally honest, I didn't even realize Oscar De Silva had a younger brother, <laughs> much less one that I wish we would have recruited here to the farm. He is a player that scored in a ton of different ways, shooting the ball, driving the ball. We didn't really have an answer for him. Scored over 20 points for the fifth straight game. You know, he's someone that I don't know exactly his recruiting history, but you wish would have been down here a little bit out west on the farm that we would have had both the Silver Brothers, not just the elder of the two. Well, we have talked so much about recruiting on this show, and unless I'm mistaken, uh, just another instance of those high Stanford standards kind of getting in the way. Oscar Da Silva, the definition of what a Stanford student-athlete is supposed to be, Tristan Da Silva is, you know, a class act, highly intelligent kid, but, you know, I heard it was it was the academic side that couldn't quite get him in. I mean, as an athlete, as a basketball player, obviously his game shows he's a Stanford-caliber athlete. Uh, but another instance of... Stanford's high standards getting in the way of recruiting. My Jacob, is this just another glaring instance of it's time for us to really revisit what the recruiting aspects bring on the you know front of academic requirements? Yeah, you know it. It's really a tricky spot because De Silva, somewhat similar to Oscar, is kind of coming into college basketball with a lot of unknowns. You know, he he's coming straight from Bayern Munich Youth Academy. There's not a ton of film. He wasn't super recruited outside of Colorado, but I think from the physical standpoint, Oscar, you know, came in at 6'9", 225. Tristan's 6'8", just over 200. You know, it seems like He's a player you'd want to have on your team to want to make an exception. And I I think that this is a perfect example of when it hurts the most because if you look at the, you know, 15 or 20 players that got action in that game, I think he has a strong case to being the best. And the fact that it wasn't his basketball skills but his academic skills what lead or what that's what led him to being played against us, I think makes a pretty strong argument that if if he could have came here if we had slightly different admission standards or just some different practices and then it would worth be worth having him on the team, especially given how well diversified his overall interests are. He also speaks a ton of languages. He's has a multi multinational background. He's someone that seems to really embody what it means to have been a Stanford student athlete. Yet, maybe the test score, maybe the GPA, whatever it is, doesn't doesn't work out through the admission standard. Yeah, if you've ever watched a Bill Walton broadcasted Pac-12 game, you know Oscar da Silva is uh, multilingual. But how about Tristan? German, Portuguese, Spanish, French, and English under the belt. That is remarkable. But on the basketball side as well, I mean, 25 points in 28 minutes, 3 of 4 from deep, 9 of 14 from the field, one turnover. At what point 
is the talent enough to outweigh the academics? Obviously, right, like you said, he was a little bit raw, 6'8", 200 pounds, significantly lighter than his brother, a different frame entirely, not necessarily a, a glaring prospect by any means, but very in alignment with the type of recruit Stanford has been getting. I know we always talk about kind of that uh, build that we've been seeing. Um, McDonald's All-American Andre Stojakovic, a heck of a player, but needs to beef up. Same with Kanan Carlisle. Look at our recruits this year. Yeah. Jalen Thompson, Ryan Agarwal, Benny Geeler, all believe below 200 pounds. Um, maybe a testament to the physicality that this team just needs, especially playing down the stretch, conference basketball, Pac-12 basketball especially. It's so physically grueling, demanding. Your body's got to keep up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one person that on our roster that I think really has those physical traits and someone that I'm excited about for his last year next year is Brandon Angel. 6'8", 240 pounds. He got the nod against Colorado and has started a lot of games. He's someone that I think has a lot of capabilities to really be a core component next year. Um, He'll be someone that we definitely will rely on. He'll compete with Max Murrell, with Reynald, and some of those other guys for minutes down low. But he's taken a a really big jump this year. Last year, started no games. He did average 20 minutes and played in 32 games. But this year, has started every game except for one. You know, you you don't see a ton of increased production necessarily. But I think in terms of what he's doing on the floor... It's absolutely critical, especially when it comes to being one of those players that isn't necessarily a star, but is doing a lot of those things that don't still show up on the stat sheet. Right. I think Brandon Angel is one of those X factors. Um, he, in that two-game stretch against Cal in Utah, 9-11 points on efficient shooting, 50% from both. That's what this team needs. It's the difference maker. So many times we'd come close and just barely lose a game out of grass, but then you get this extra production from Angel, and this is a whole different ball game. Um, yeah, like you said, started 22 out of 23 games this year before not getting a single career start. I love that he's in there. Uh, I just think it's a confidence thing. I think he definitely fell victim to that kind of slippery slope this entire team and program was on early on, but he's really found his footing. 11 points, like I said, against Utah, and how about 14 points at Colorado? Once he finds his outside shot, I think will be the difference maker. He had some huge threes last year. This year, he went from a 36% three-point shooter to just a 23% three-point shooter. But, you know, if he can get that mark right back on track uh, with the same usage rate, you know, we'll see more out of him. And I think that is the X factor. You've got him in the starting lineup. Time for him to produce and product of that confidence that, I think is inevitable. Yeah, no, absolutely. He has been just absolutely superb over the last three games, averaging just under 12 points. And I think another aspect that we see is that he can really switch well in the pick and roll. I think, you know, with O'Connell and Silva and even Ingram, whenever they get screen set on them, Angel is not someone at all that I am worried about. He, he isn't the quickest off the ball, but is quite lanky and is quick enough to to step in front of a guard that's driving or 
can actually hold his own on the perimeter. I think next year, our length, size, and agility will be super important, especially with these guys coming in that will will be pretty tall, pretty lanky. And so he will be someone that I think is really responsible for a lot of success. And, you know, as you touched on, not just some of the intangibles, but if he can get that confidence back and be a leader for the, some of the younger guys, if he can be a leader on the court as well, we would absolutely love to see that because in games when he does well, Stanford does well. You look at some of the earlier performances, two losses, Wisconsin and Texas, but he had double digits in both of those, and those were very competitive games against Power 5 opponents. Texas ranked in the top 15. Wisconsin, a perennial competitive school. Those are games where he's playing high-quality competition, and not only did he show up and get the start, but he he really made it worth the the while of Coach Haas and the rest of this coaching staff. Right, and... and- him being that plug and play and doing what the team needs. If you know anything about Coach Haas and his program, he's all about floor burns. Um, floor burns are the stat that the team keeps track of when you know you're diving for a loose ball or taking a charge. And Brandon Angel, right up there, leading the or rather fifth on the team with 24 this year. So he's not afraid to do the dirty work, which is what this team needs. Yeah. Who who else is? What does that leaderboard look like, Zach? Well, we got Ingram. At 31, which again, you know, I know you're, I know you're in disbelief. I, I think he does everything he needs to do, uh, maybe except for scoring, as of late at least. O'Connell there next with 29, James Keefe with 28, and Spencer Jones with 25, and then Angel with 24 before a big drop off to the next guy. Um, but those five, you know, really getting down, doing the dirty work, just a testament to the fact that it's next man up mentality these guys are uh not afraid to do what they have to to win uh definitely seen that in the last six games we'll see kind of the trajectory they take how they bounce back jacob any predictions this week got arizona state on thursday before arizona on saturday yeah i I mean i think it depends on which stanford team Mm. shows up right this this first half against colorado it was Competitive Colorado was ahead for a majority of it, but it was a very slim margin. Then we end up tying it, I believe, heading into halftime. And then coming out of halftime, they they went on what felt like a 30-point run. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long it was before we scored a bucket. And so I think it depends on, you know, what team shows up because in that the start of that second half, it, it seemed like we were still playing with high energy, high effort. We were actually playing relatively good defense. We just couldn't get the ball in the basket. And so I think, you know, against Arizona State, this is a game that as a whole seems very winnable. Um, Even though the Cardinal did lose against them on December 4th, that was a 68-64 matchup that we dropped. I I think this is a very winnable game, and I think we actually match up quite well with Arizona State especially now that we're coming back home should have the absolutely electric sixth man student section with all 32 people in there screaming and yelling so you know I I think this is a game that if Stanford can score anywhere from I don't even know 
mid fifties to to sixty to mid sixties that that Stanford can win because I, I think this Arizona State team is one that could really get bogged down by the Cardinals' defensive intensity. It's a bold take, but Stanford's defense definitely has come up big, and Arizona has not scored more than eighty points in nearly a month. Matter of fact, this Arizona team one in five in their last six games. So Stanford, the beneficiary of kind of context here and, and and playing them at a great time. I agree. I think Stanford gets this one. They've got a chip on their shoulder, showing that run was not a fluke. But then thinking to Saturday, I mean, just the Goliath of Arizona. Twenty one and three. All three losses coming to the Pac-12, but they're also riding a six-game win streak. That's a tough one, um, and that fully depends on the Stanford program we get. Not in the sense of, do they come out firing, but in the sense of, are they going to give up? Because Arizona will go on a run, but does Stanford just let it happen and give up? Or do they keep pushing, play their game, do what they need to do, play disciplined, and put up a fight. Yeah. You know, that that's a game that I, I don't even see very many avenues where we get a victory. But I do see a lot of avenues where we can feel good about how we played. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, that's going to be really... I think a competitive first half is, is well within the works. Um, I think when that Arizona run happens, how we respond in the immediate aftermath, do we cut that deficit you know it i don't think it's super unrealistic to think they could go up 20 25 maybe even 30 points but do we keep fighting do we cut that back down into you know the teens do we cut it into single digits what does that look like and i think you know what kind of shots are we taking it and how are we shooting the ball because those i think are things that we can all control for for the most part and so i think trying to make it very tight in the first half, responding well to the to the run that they make, and then playing with a lot of effort down the stretch is what I would consider a, uh, you know, not a victory, but a moral victory, you might call. Totally fair. I mean, Arizona, number four in the country, even got a first place vote. But it's a game of runs, and for this Stanford program, in dire need of a moral victory, could be make or break on Saturday. Yeah, no, absolutely. But is there any chance that you think we we can pull this out? I mean, Arizona, not to be spewing nonsense or more nonsense than I normally do, but <laughs> they beat Washington State by five. Stanford lost to Washington State by one through the transitive property. That seems to give us a chance right there, Zach. That's a Stanford brain right there. Oh, man. <laughs> is there any scenario where... This game is competitive in the last five minutes. Hey, man, you know, you know, by the the transitive property, Arizona beat UCLA by six, and uh, I mean, we only lost UCLA by fourteen, but it, it was like twenty three to zero, <laughs> the start of that game. Uh, there, there's certainly a chance. You can't count this program out. Um, saw it last year. Obviously, completely different. I suppose playing USC at home, a top five program with no fans in the stadium. I was on the call for that one on KZSU Stanford 9.1 FM. <laughs> um, but with with the real game environment, 
it's tough to say because this is also an Arizona team full of pros and talent. I mean, Omar Abalo just a force to be reckoned with inside. It's going to be tough to finish. We're going to have to be hitting our jump shots. Azulas Tubelis, it's got to be Pac-12 Player of the Year, barring any sort of, I don't know, mishap or wrong direction that the program takes. This Arizona team, if beaten by Stanford, it'll be a product of them beating themselves. Yeah. You know, I didn't even bring out my strongest transitive property argument. (laughs) Oregon beat them by 19 on January 14th. The lowly Ducks that Stanford beat by seven beat this Arizona team. I'm no math major, but according to my calculations, that means Stanford could win by up to 26 (laughs) through the transitive property. And, you know, as you mentioned, they've got so many good players. Azulis, Tubulus, definitely butchered that. Is, you know, the Lithuanian basketball player that comes in at 6 feet 11 inches first team all pack 12 last year leading the league in points this year you know there, there's people from the national media that are calling him calling for him to be player of the year what what are we doing on the defensive end against him are we doubling him are we gonna let him get his 20 25 30 and make sure that the rest are held in check who are we having guard him individually, but also in the scheme and big picture of this game? What are you doing if you're you're setting up the defensive game plan? I'm the, I'm the biggest advocate of big-time players make big-time plays. I want the very best guarding the very best. And, you know, you might be in disagreement with this one. I'm putting Harrison Ingram on to Bellis. Uh, Ingram, I don't think we talk about his defensive game enough. Just such a solid understanding, particularly this off-ball defense, um, which is just a product of that high basketball IQ that makes him such a good prospect. We've seen Spencer Jones time and time again definitely guard um, some of the team's best players, so I wouldn't be surprised to see the senior out there as well. But it's just about not letting Tubelis get comfortable. You got to get in his grill, get under his skin. Because once that man gets firing... He'll hit you from the mid-range. He'll hit you from down low. He'll hit you from deep. Can't let him get in a rhythm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think he, there's a strong argument to be made for Spencer Jones, Harrison Ingram, or Brandon Angel are all guarding him. You know, you went with Ingram. I I wonder, you know, Angel coming in at about 10 pounds heavier, about an inch or so taller, according to the official records. I think it, it could be more than that. But... You need Harrison on the offensive end. Do you think guarding the likely Pac-12 player of the year is such an exhausting effort that that maybe you put the lesser defender on him such that Harrison's legs will, will last throughout the, the whole game and his offensive uh, performance won't suffer from fatigue? I mean, that's totally fair, but I mean, Hass has been quite odd in his rotation. So even if they assign Ingram on him... You know, it's unlikely he'll stay on him the whole game. Harrison, pretty sporadic in the minutes. Haas has had him out there for over 30 minutes at a time. Sometimes even under 20. He's logging right about 25 to 27 over this most recent stretch. Certainly the legs are tough. Um, 
on the flip side, you know, in an ideal world, yeah, we would get Harrison Fresh, allow him to produce offensively, but the system that he's in, they're not flowing the offense through him. Yeah, he makes plays, but the ball is not going through him. They're not playing and facilitating through him. So I don't think from a, you know, tactical point that is of concern. If we had a different coach, maybe it's a different ball game, maybe it's a different story, but no, I mean, continue to rotate him. Also, this is a Stanford program that we, like you said, with Brandon Angel in particular, the ability to switch is so valuable. That being said, they also have to be on top of the rotations. They rotate on the perimeter. You've got Omar Ballo slipping, and if the help side isn't there, that's an easy dunk for the 6'11 big man. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's... you took it right out of my mouth. We've we're talking about someone that to be list that we at least have the physical height matchup. We really don't have anyone to guard Balo. He's coming in at seven pounds. I'm uh, sorry, not I wish he was coming in at seven pounds. <laughs> <laughs> coming in at seven Fresh out the womb. Yeah. Seven foot tall, two hundred and sixty pounds. He is by far going to be the most skilled, biggest player on the floor. No hate going to Reynald, but, I mean, that's a man among boys essentially averaging a double-double this year, coming in at 15 points, 9 rebounds. How do we stop the Twin Towers? No, fully agree. I think, like I said, we kind of benefit from context here. Balo... I thought was the better player than Tubelis uh, before kind of there's been a separation as of late. I mean, Balo double digits in every single game this season until the end of January. Then he puts up seven points in their last outing as well. He hasn't attempted double-digit field goals since mid-January. So if we can keep him from getting second-chance opportunities... He's not in the mindset as of late to produce for himself, not looking for his own shot. I mean, he converts at a 65% clip, which is unreal. But he's not going to be the aggressor. If we can keep him out of position, crash the defensive glass, yes, he's going to make an impact on the defensive end, but mitigate that offensive impact, and it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, so so let's get down to the nitty-gritty of it. Who who are we bringing in <laughs> off the bench? Who are we putting in the starting lineup to actually like match up on these guys? Obviously, we've got some height. We don't have a ton of weight, and I think there's a, a strong argument to be made that whenever you kind of do bring some of these secondary forwards in, that, that there is a considerable defensive drop-down I mean, Max Morrill plays really hard, and, he, and he's really tall, but I just I can't imagine what happens if he gets down in the low post against him. Call me crazy, but I actually think this is one of my best takes this year. <laughs> he started the first seven games of the year, went to the bench, started a pair of games after that, has not started since. I'm putting James Keefe down there, okay? 6'9". 240, but Keith plays with that tenacity that you require when you're going against Goliath. Keith is the man. Keith is the answer. He will bring that physicality. 
I actually agree with you. <laughs> I uh, I love the way James Keefe plays. I think you know you obviously sacrifice a little bit, but you know getting him in there early and often, I think is definitely a way to 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 play it. I mean, I I would love to see Keefe get in there and just agitate the Arizona forwards. I, I don't even care if he gets two or three fouls early in the game. Just make them upset. Make them uncomfortable. You know, stick a finger in their ear, pull their hair. I don't care what it takes to get them off their game. I, I think that he is someone that's going to come in with a specific job, and, and I think he's a great person for that job. If we shut down those two guys, though, somehow Arizona still has so many weapons. Namely, they've got Kerr Creesa, who has been playing also really well, a guard out of Estonia. Their other guard, Courtney Ramey, who actually played at the University of Texas for a bit and transferred to Arizona, has also been playing exceptionally well. They're both averaging over 10 points a game. They are both shooting the ball from three-point land very well, coming in at 37 and 40% respectively. If they don't get the ball inside and it becomes a matter of guards, who who are you calling on? I think the obvious choice is Michael O'Connell, but are you, are you running a two-guard set with Issa Silver? Issa Silva, are you having Harrison or Spencer switch onto them? What are you doing about their two high-quality guards that are both quality shooters, distributors, and quick off the dribble? Yeah, I think uh, the answer lies in the Michaels. Michael O'Connell and Michael Jones, two guys that you definitely don't think of when it comes to the defensive end. I think Michael O'Connell can be pesty. Like we've talked about, this is going to be a game where Stanford has to make him uncomfortable, get under their skin. Michael O'Connell, high energy, former lax guy, has those quick feet, able to really stay with someone. He needs to stay disciplined, and he needs to remain physical, don't get bodied. I think he does a great job. Michael Jones had the ability to sit down with him during the offseason. He prides himself most on his defensive game, despite that identity as a three-point shooter. If we can let that pride really come through on Saturday, I think he has a chance to kind of play the role of a Clay Thompson-like guy. Pesky, great on the ball, presence, and there's your answer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, actually went to the Warriors game last night where Clay, you know, Dropped over 40. Oh, man. Was within a couple threes of the single-game record. I, I love that comparison. And, you know, I think someone that actually, you know, we've talked a lot about all the advantages that Arizona has physically. I think we have a couple interesting matchups on our own offensive end because who is going to guard Spencer Jones if you're the Arizona Wildcats? You've got, obviously, the two big men, Tubalus and Balo, but both of them, while they have the height and the size advantage, definitely don't have the quickness. No. You, you look at the two guards, Ramey comes in five inches shorter. Creesa comes in five inches shorter. So then you kind of go down to that that fourth or fifth, sixth option, and you've got either 
geez, these names of these Arizona <laughs> players are really throwing me for a loop here. Pele or Pell Larson. Don't know if there's how you pronounce double S's or if the silent E. My apologies to the Swedish listeners on air. Or, you know, Cedric Henderson Jr., who has only started nine games, but even those two guys are going to be a little bit less experienced. They're going to be a little bit slower and a little bit smaller than Spencer Jones, where he should be able to shoot over them. Obviously, they're going to be aware of this and and probably going to be either doubling him or fighting over screens. But I think Spencer Jones is in a position where he, he can really come to the offensive end of the floor with confidence that he he should be able to get his way for a majority of the game this week. Well, it boils down to, like you said, what Stanford do we get? You get two very different Stanfords, and you get two very different Spencer Jones. Uh, these last two years, certainly, more often than not, it's an effective, very you know high-volume scorer, Spencer Jones. Um, and within that, you get, you get a Spencer Jones that sometimes is really firing away. He had six threes just a couple games ago. If he catches heat, run him off some pin downs, get some open looks, certainly he'll be tough to stop. That being said, like you said, on the individual basis, an Arizona team that lacks kind of that glue defensive guy, uh, you know, when I look up and down the roster, maybe Adama Ball, the 6'7", 190 guard, you know, he's shown length and quickness time and time again, but Jones, maybe they won't have an answer for him. Then again, maybe they won't need to have an answer for him. Um, but lost my train of thought there. The, the, the reason this Arizona team is so lethal is the team defense. Disciplined, well-coached. And so it's once you get past that first line of defense, once they rotate, you're going against against a seven-footer in a ballo. Certainly, you need some high IQ plays, especially from Spencer Jones. But you also need that aggression. And so I think once he gets that first line of defense, can he hit down the mid-range? Certainly we've seen him hit the three-pointer. But where does his arsenal expand? Can he demonstrate it on Saturday? Yeah, no, absolutely. And hopefully he is able to draw extra defenders that should free up shooters. And we will have to to make those shots because points in the paint are going to be absolutely gritty with both of those guys down low. Give me a score prediction. Prediction, Zach. What are we? Uh, what are we thinking here? You know, keeping it realistic, we need to go Stanford fifty nine, Arizona seventy seven. Yeah, you know that's that's a very realistic uh, line. <laughs> can't I wish say I could I, give you some can't better. Say I disagree, but you know, I guess. I guess I'm I'm feeling a little optimism in the okay. air. Okay. I'm going to go with Stanford 59, Arizona 65. I think we, we keep it within single digits by the end of the game. Um, I would love to see a, uh, an upset storm the court. That would be so fun. And this is one of those games, you know, that reminds me a little bit of Oregon a few years ago I don't know if you I believe that was my freshman year so you might have been just a wee high school senior then but number three Oregon came in no one gave us a chance and we we won the game upset the nation and 
you know, showed him that Maple's Pavilion is a place to be reckoned with. Maybe maybe there's some magic at, at Maple's this upcoming week. Who knows? Hey, man, Maple's magic. Haven't seen in a while, but never out of the question. Absolutely. Now, kind of pivoting once again, just reminding you, a huge thanks to all our listeners. You've been listening to KZSU 90.1 FM. My name is Jacob Nidick, alongside my co-host, Zach Zafrin. You've got about 20 minutes left or so. Stanford men's basketball has been the primary thing that we've been covering so far, but let's jump ship to the women's team, which you know normally we spend a little bit less time on because there's a lot less controversy. It's not fun talking about 15, 20-point victories every week, but this past week, not the case. Dropping their third game of the season to a Washington team that I don't think very few people even knew we were playing, much less gave them a chance. Yeah, a a bit of a head-scratcher. I mean, obviously, when Stanford takes the court time and time again, you expect big things. But Washington, 5-7, and bottom third of the conference. It is maybe one of those Sunday morning things. Maybe it's contentment. Ultimately, though, it boiled down to the rebounding battle. Washington out-rebounding Stanford 34-24. to It's not often a team out-rebounds Stanford, especially when you think of the trees down low in the court. Cameron Brink, Ashton Prachtel, uh Kiki Irioff, and Fran Belibi. So many threats on the glass. And just a great turnaround from this Washington team. They faced an early deficit and then outscored the Cardinal far and away in the rest of the game. It was that second quarter that definitely killed them, though. 30 points in a quarter. You know Tara Vanderveer will not take that. Um, my favorite storyline from this game, L. Ledeen, former teammates with Hannah Jump, fair out here in Los Altos at Pinewood School. She had one heck of a game, 21 points, and that, that'll do it. And I think this is just a reminder that any game you could lose, and when you're a team playing for a national championship, should we be worried about a loss like this? I'm of the school thought that this late in the season, maybe. Because you know what? There is no room for error when it comes to March. And the fact that you have the capacity to lose to a program like Washington below 500, maybe there's something to be said about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, you know, you, it it shows you that every game is worth something. Mm -hmm. You know, we, even just five minutes ago, told you how boring it is to talk about these lopsided victories. This game shows you, you still have to show up. Mm -hmm. You still have to earn those victories. And, you know, it, it kind of seems like after that first quarter, we kind of just assume that this is where the rest of the game was going. You know, we're basically up double digits. We held them to single digits on their offensive end. And then they put a 30 piece up, which, I mean, I don't, I can't think of very many quarters where that's happened in Tara's entire career because she has prided herself on recruiting players that 
play exceptionally hard on the defensive end and being smart in her scheme to be in position for rebounds, to make calculated gambles for steals and deflections. And and that just did not happen in that second quarter. And, you know, they still had a chance to win it late. Even with that blunder in the second quarter, they had a chance to win it late. They end the game on a 9-2 run against them. It it definitely is reason for, I don't think panic, but maybe a, a little bit of increased awareness about the next few games and a little bit of a greater appreciation for some of these seemingly meaningless games. 100%. I think the only time I could remember Tara, a team of Tara's giving up 30 points, last year, home game against Cal, they give up 32 points to Cal in the second quarter. But it's about how they respond. Second half, Stanford said, I'll do you one better. They scored 33 points in the third quarter in that one. Obviously a different story in this one as Stanford not getting it done offensively as they were not defensively. 20 points, hey, that's that's a heck of a performance still, but not enough when you're giving up a 30 ball. Um, but the real reason to be concerned, look, they're going to be fine. They're 22-3. and three. They're competing atop the Pac-12. But they're now the sixth seed in the AP poll. They're running the risk of giving up a top-four seed, a number-one seed, in the tournament, that is where there is real reason to be concerned. And, you know, if they don't hold on to that high seeding come late in March, they could find themselves not only, you know, losing in a later stage game, but perhaps being an early exit if they have to face a South Carolina and Indiana and LSU or UConn early on. Yeah. Why don't you kind of walk through, you know, a little bit more explicitly why that number one seed is so advantageous both from a strategic lens on the court but also more broadly in terms of the intangible benefits that that comes with you know the confidence as a number one seed the increased awareness on your back whatever it may be what what are some of the things that, you know, the average basketball fan might not realize about about why that is so valuable? Well, for one, um, women's March Madness tournament, slightly different than men's. There's been, especially since that NCAA bubble, a lot of pushback, and it's been great to see the progressions in, you know, equitable distributions of resources and putting on these tournaments but still, the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament are actually hosted at the homes of the one seed. Um, so Stanford hosted last year in Maples, and if they run the risk and have to go on the road, not necessarily a true road game, but just you know getting taken away from Maples, you're, you're much more comfortable playing at home, especially come postseason, so that's for sure. Number two, the path is just so much easier. Last year... Stanford played a 16 seed in Montana State in the first round. Run by a number 8 seed Kansas in the second round. Close game against Maryland in the third round, but that was a program that they had beat earlier in the year. 
Then stuff gets serious. They face the two seed in Texas, but ultimately lose to UConn in the Final Four. You can walk away with upsets when it comes into March. It gets harder when you string them one after another. And you just put yourself in the best position. That's what they're doing. They want to win a national championship. How do you do that? You can't control anyone else but yourself, but you put yourself in the best position to do so. And giving yourself a bad seat is not helping at all. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, these other teams that we're talking about that are going to be competing to raise the trophy at the end of the year are getting battle-tested left and right. South Carolina, one of two unbeaten teams this most recent game had a nail-biter victory against UConn, which obviously is the perennial program in women's college basketball. They have a really difficult game this upcoming week. They're playing against number three, LSU, who is also undefeated. So you've got number one hosting at number three, but just tomorrow you have Indiana and Iowa who are also ranked in the top 10 with a huge matchup in Bloomington, Indiana. So these teams are being battle-tested, and they're sparring it out against heavyweights. Stanford obviously had a very convincing victory against UCLA, a very tight game against South Carolina. They've beaten ranked opponents, but this late in the season... They're not coming out with victories against top five teams. They're coming out with, you know, a lot of wins, but also this most recent loss against a team that's that's nowhere near the top of women's college basketball. Right. Another, you know, impact of being in the Pac-12. I mean, they face number 17 Arizona on the road on Thursday, which will be interesting to see how they respond. But that's about as good as it gets before postseason play. So they need to sharpen up. And that's the tough part about being such a good program. You have to sharpen yourself. You're not going to you know, allow yourself to continue to get better by, by the people you're playing. Because like, let's be frank, they play Arizona State. Yes, USC is good and beat them early in the year, but not ranked that highly. And then Colorado and Utah, not much to be said about them, with the exception of Utah, who's actually tied at the top of the Pac-12 right now with Stanford. So ultimately, it may come down to that. But Stanford wants to stay sharp. It's got to come from within. They don't have the benefit of being in these Big Ten matchups, like you said, in Indiana versus in Iowa or an SEC matchup with South Carolina and LSU. It's a struggle. But they want to win a national championship. That's what it's going to require. Absolutely. And it kind of brings in the question, do you think expectations were too high for this team? I mean, every single rider, it seemed, had them in the national championship. Every single rider had them in the final four. Every single rider basically had them going undefeated in Pac-12 play. It's almost like the season was a foregone conclusion until you get to those last two, three, four games. 
And so, you know, maybe if the standards or expectations were a little bit lesser, this doesn't seem so surprising. But, you know, that that's kind of what happens whenever you're this talented and whenever you've got such big superstars such as Haley Jones and Cameron Brink. How do you think the expectations of the season have not only affected the team internally, but affected people's perception of their performance, namely after seemingly uh, uncharacteristic losses like this most recent game against Washington? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think we saw that on full display after losing to um, USC. Because look, when we lost to USC back then, they had a win percentage north of 75%. That is a great program. On the road, too, and people were pointing fingers. Expectations are something unique because it puts on this pressure 100%. I mean, heck, you have Haley Jones and Cameron Brink on the cover of Slam. They are huge icons in the world of not just women's college basketball, but college basketball and basketball as a whole. And with that expectation, they have performed, but you're under the spotlight. You're under scrutiny for each and everything, and it is tough. And the difference is, does pressure make diamonds, or does pressure compress you to the point of defeat? I think this is a program that historically has produced diamonds. I think this is a program that is filled with talented athletes who are gems. But playing like that is a whole different story. Um, you know, I don't think I could necessarily call it beneficial. I don't think I would call it detrimental either. They're recruited for a reason. They come here for a reason. They know they're going to be asked of a ton and they do perform. The scrutiny at times certainly uncalled for, but they're playing on the biggest stage. They're here for a reason. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You know, Haley Jones and Cameron Brink, regardless of what happens this season or next season or however many seasons they're still here on the farm, will go down as definitely two of the most influential athletes we've ever had of any sport across the entire athletics department. Their sheer fame and notoriety across, I mean, pop culture, fashion, sports, music is is really unprecedented in a lot of ways, especially for today's day and age with NIL deals and looking at athletes on this campus. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people still won't be a little bit disappointed if they don't end up this season, you know, in the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight or or even beyond. They've got six regular season games left traveling to the Arizona schools, one of which the Wildcats are ranked right now. This is an Arizona team that in a lot of ways presents an interesting challenge, but is a variable is a very winnable game. We beat them by 16 last time. Do you think there's a chance that that this could go sour again and and this seemingly out of the blue loss goes from one to two. Certainly, there, there, there's always a chance. But like I said 
They're here for a reason. I think that they bounce back. This is a program that is hard-nosed. Tara Vanderveer is not going to let her team go down with a fight. Yes, a, a, a loss stings, but it's not going to stick around when you have the faces and the names in that locker room like they do. Um, Arizona will be a statement game. I see them coming out firing. I see them really making a, uh, a statement about their defense. You know, when they lost to USC, it was their offense that stagnated. They put up just 46 points. Then they came out the next game, 74 points, 24 of which came in the first half. They came out firing. This next game gave up 72 points to a Washington team that is subpar, according to Pac-12 standards at least. I see them really putting up a stout fight defensively at Arizona, giving up less than 60 points. Yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely some interesting games happening with that team, obviously, the national picture has two super important games. Once again, one of those happening on Thursday, the other on Sunday. But on air, we also have some important games. Stanford men's basketball versus Arizona State. That's a 7 p.m. tip. If you can't come live here at Maples, make sure to tune in here on KZSU. We'll be broadcasting it. And then on Saturday, once again at Maples, we have the Wildcats of Arizona coming in. That will be on KZSU 90.1 FM. Two huge games that will hopefully bring a lot of excitement to Maples and a little bit of magic. We've got about two minutes left. Let's hit you with a few more basketball headlines. Namely, Kyrie Irving to the Mavericks. What were your initial reactions to that, Zach? Mavericks are going all in. Um, the question is, is that the right decision? You know, I don't know. They're 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 kind of a, a fringe real contender for me. Um, I just don't really see them making that jump. You have Luca, you have Kyrie, you have all the pieces, but so many other people really hitting their stride this year. The thing of the Celtics, the Nuggets, the Bucks doing what they do. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And then a historical headline: LeBron James currently extremely close to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in passing him. He is within striking distance for sure. He's got thirty-six points to go. Is that something that you're excited about? You think happens in one game? What are your thoughts on that record falling? I think that's huge. Um, I don't think he gets it tonight when they play the Thunder. But then they've got the Bucks at home, and then they play at Golden State. I think both of those would be so poetic. Maybe the passing of the torch with Giannis on the Bucks, or, of course, the one team that has given such trouble to Golden State Warriors. Going to be a historic moment for the game of basketball and sports as a whole. So looking forward to LeBron James doing a LeBron James thing and making history. Excited for it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Zach, and thank you to all our listeners out there. My name has been my name is Jacob Nidick. This has been the Sports Zoo on KZSU 90.1 FM. We'll be back next week with a recap of some basketball and so much more, including the Super Bowl. Be sure to tune in.